Now you hear it. When you're a child, you learn there are three dimensions. Height, width, and depth. Like a shoebox. Then later you hear there's a fourth dimension. Time. From Seattle, we're drinking the movies. I'm Taylor Baker. And I'm Michael Clausen. Oh, hey, Michael. Hey, Taylor. How's it going? It's going well. We are doing a rescreening uh, episode here on a title that I didn't get to for our best of the 2010s. And I'm, I'm kind of lamenting that decision, but I'm really thrilled that we, we took the time to rescreen Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret. How are you doing? doing great very excited to talk about it i think it's the second kenneth lonergan title we've talked about on the show after you can count on me a few months back this year uh should be fun it should um as always we do have our first impression of the next rescreening title let's go ahead and do that the next title is going to be the thin red line all right let's do it in this world a man himself is nothing and there ain't no world but this one i've seen another world sometimes i think it was just my imagination if i go first i'll wait for you there on the other side of the dark waters why should i be afraid to die i belong to you straight up that hill there. How many men do you think it's worth? How many lives? There's nowhere we can hide except in each other. All right, Michael, that was the trailer for The Thin Red Line. What do you think? I can't wait to get to this title. This is a film I haven't seen. It's one of two Terrence uh, Malick narrative features that I haven't seen, along with To the Wonder. So I'll probably try to get that in as well, just for the sake of, uh, uh, you know, to satisfy the completest in me. Um, It's kind of interesting. This isn't a reaction so much to the trailer as much just uh, as to the filmography, but I think hit the the last film he made just before this was days of heaven which was like 20 years before this came out so i think that's one of like the biggest gaps uh between films and his filmography that's maybe a film i'd be interested in revisiting just to see the kind of uh leap between those two films since that time span was so large i think it looks awesome what about you as you know i'm a big terrence malick fan i think that his more recent um, narrative features are um, kind of some of the best of the last decade as far as films go, which is a little bit counter consensus. The New World is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, The Thin Red Line shows a lot of the flourishes, a lot of the storytelling techniques, the passive camera and the characters inhabiting the space with the the nature kind of being the the most beautiful thing even amongst a war movie i'm i'm pretty thrilled to see how he tells the story of war i also have not seen this film i think it is the last film from him that i haven't seen um i should rewatch to the wonder because i want to i remember seeing that and not liking it um but yeah i'm Absolutely thrilled that we're tossing Malik in on the rescreening train. 
good stuff ahead. All right. With that, let's get to Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret. What happened to you? Nothing. Do you want to tell us about it? I think I can handle this part myself. According to the statement, the light was green when the bus passed through the intersection? Yes. So you're saying she walked against the light? I know you feel a sense of responsibility about what happened, but you can't not do your homework and you can't throw away your scholarship because of it. That bus driver probably has a family to support. Do you remember me from the bus accident? It's a tragedy. You cannot bring her back. I'm talking about telling the accident investigators what really happened. But you already talked to them. I know that, but I lied. So you're going to go home, you're going to do your homework, and I'm going to lose my job. And who's going to take care of my family? You? I just need to talk to somebody who doesn't completely misunderstand who I am or what's going on inside me. I feel like you and I used to relate to each other really well. I feel so bad about what happened, and I'm trying so hard to do something about it. The worlds of one would leave me alive, and yet you will weep and know why. It is Margaret you mourn for. Okay, Michael, where do we begin on this... Um new york tale of murder and sadness and happiness and uh i I guess it's kind of an opera huh (laughs) yeah operatic is that the word that maybe comes to mind (laughs) maybe especially uh with the extended cut where it actually ends during the opera Absolutely. So maybe we'll start there. This came out towards the start of the decade. I feel like it is a film that kind of hobbled its way into the consciousness of film culture because it was entangled in lawsuits during post-production and got a limited release in theaters in 2011. uh, 14 theaters. Yeah, with a cut that Lonergan, I think, was not uh, particularly satisfied with, that was not as long as he wanted. And then this, the next year, 2012, a three-hour extended cut was put out on DVD, and that's the one that we're going to be talking about more specifically today, but we'll probably talk a little bit about the differences between the theatrical and extended cut, since there are some meaningful or at least notable differences between the two, I think. Yes, I don't know how much I'll be able to retain of the differences with the editing choices, but there there is a whole lot of of, uh, of difference here. Um, I think the the first thing you have to do to kind of explain a movie that is this packed with talent is to list out some of the talent um, that is squeezed together into this New York piece, kind of like tenants in a New York apartment building. Most notably, we have actor, writer, and director, Kenneth Lonergan himself, playing the father. Then we have J. Smith Cameron, playing the mother of our main character. We have Anna Packin. We have John Gallagher Jr. We even have Olivia Thurlby, for those of us that remember the whackness. We got Kristen Ritter for three whole seconds. <laughs> There's Jean Renault, Mark Ruffalo, Matt Damon, Matthew Broderick, Allison Janney, Kieran Culkin, Rosemary DeWitt, and Glenn Fleshler. There is an incredible immensity of talent on the camera here. 
Kristen Ritter cam cameo is one of the more striking uh, shots in the movie because you keep waiting for Kristen Ritter to come back, surely, right? Yep. No, nope, just a three seconds. <laughs> that is, that's right. Yeah, a lot, a lot of talent uh, in front of the camera for sure. Um, notably, I think in addition to that, we do have Sidney Pollock serving as producer here. Something that I was not aware of until I completed the film, but it definitely. I, I can see how his uh, his kind of game um, and, and willingness to just get something made um, may have benefited a film like this and actually mm. coming to fruition. Got it. Cool. Well, should we talk about the story a little bit? Yeah, maybe a synopsis so that people have any idea what this film is about because it's hard to define. So why, why don't we get a synopsis for him? Here is a quick synopsis. New York high school student, Lisa Cohen in, inadvertently causes an accident in which a bus driver played by Mark Ruffalo runs over a pedestrian guilt stricken over her role in the woman's death. Lisa's mood swings from more from normal to furious with her angry outbursts mostly directed at her mother. Lisa reaches out to the dead woman's best friend and, and the bus driver, but her failed efforts to make amends only lead to more hostility. That is one way of viewing the story um, if you just focus on Lisa. So yeah, <laughs> there, there's just so much in play here. Um, <clears throat> I think that as much as Lisa is our main character, um, the the introductory shot from Richard Lenchewski, who is our cinematographer here, of the um, New York sidewalks and just the personal narrative of a public city really sets the tone in, in a remarkable way that um, works hand in hand with, with the score. So although Anna Packens Lisa is our main character, it feels like she is kind of one third of a triptych that's um, maybe made up of the city itself and the sound that that city brings with it, her, and then counteractively kind of the people that she's interacting with. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I immediately thought of that line from Jules Dassin's The Naked City, which we covered at one point on the show, right? Where he says there are 8 million stories in the naked city and this has been one of them. This feels... Like that quote might work even better in this movie than in that movie. Um, Just update because, the number. Yeah, exactly. Um, because Lonergan is, um, you know, focused on Anna Paquin's story and sort of the emotional fallout from this accident she's involved in, but he really welcomes in life beyond her and really um, openly acknowledges all the people kind of swirling around her in New York city. Um, and really openly acknowledges that her experience is only one of many, many, many personal experiences happening at once in the world. Yes, that, that is completely the way that I saw it too. Um, I think my favorite thing, um, about Lonergan just in general as a storyteller is that he kind of built a really verbose, loquacious um, 
background to all of his stories. Maybe not all the main characters talk this much, especially here in Margaret. We have main characters that just talk a lot, but there's always um, talking over each other happening. And um, it just, it reminds me that back in the seventies, Robert Altman was told that his films were terrible because you couldn't hear what someone was saying because he was the first person to have two people talking at once. And Jack Warner had him fired off of a Mm. movie. Um, I think that movie was mash. I can't remember. Um, Mm -hmm. But it it just, it's amazing what he's done with the ability to have two people talking at the same time and just watching Anna Packin go back and forth with her mother played by J Smith Cameron, who's Lonergan's wife uh, in real life is I mean, it's as juicy as film gets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember this, the, the, the sort of Altman effect of overlapping dialogue. I remember that coming up when Uncut Gems came out, especially uh, the use of it towards the beginning of that film. Um, right. Very different effect there where it's about the hustle and bustle, the chaos of things. Whereas in Margaret, I think one of the things I love about this movie is I, I, I can't think of many films that capture as well as this one does how we all feel like we're at the center of our own emotion emotional universes mm-hmm. um, and you feel that particularly intensely when you're young um, but really all of our universes are, are overlapping and affecting each other and and going on at once um, and the overlapping dialogue that's that's one of the more striking for formal elements of this one um, I think really conveys that yeah, I, you're totally right. And I think that that is very strident of you. <laughs> oh, well played. Well played. <laughs> oh, wait. No, I, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to use it that way. <laughs> um, that's just a little reference to a, a small uh, interaction that is had between Anna Packins, Lisa, and uh, a character that I'm forgetting the name of that was the best friend of Alice and Janney's um, victim of the the bus driver, Mark Ruffalo. Um I don't know how to really talk about a film like this. It it feels like I'm watching the best trappings of film show me a play um, Mm -hmm. or the best, um, you know, pieces of how film tells stories, you know, the, the use of the score, which I, I will say, I think got a little bit more labored as this film went on, but in the beginning, Mm -hmm. it's really, really strong and you you just have that sense of snappiness that an actual play would have and seeing that on film in, in such a huge scope with so many different characters that you feel like um, might be friends of Anna Packins. What, like just at the high school, you, you get the general sense that these people are real, which is not something you often get from from film that is shot this way. We were talking about Nomadland recently and that film uses actual non-actors to make one main actress feel that way. I think this is something totally different, but very similar in making the story feel true when you don't get the sense that these are actors you're watching, but people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is something very real about this movie, which sounds like a really simple thing to say, but I think there's something um, kind of unfancy about his visual direction. The overlapping dialogue is a very striking um, formal touch, but visually, I think he's kind of a 
straightforward director. Um, it's kind of matter of fact. I think you really get that, you know, with the scene of the accident itself, where there's nothing particularly stylish about that. It is just the horrifying reality of what happens to a human body in uh, in, a, in a terrible accident, and just the realness of it. The idea that the that the world can be very not gentle with with people in in accidents is just so real and that's what's so horrifying about it um you know i think um one criticism or i guess one complaint i've heard about lonergan before is that they think some people would say he's not stylish enough he needs to do more with the medium i like i mean this is what i would come to him for is like yeah you come not expecting that kind of thing you want sort of just the the reality of things, the the unstylishness in a way gives these performers a chance to really dig into to who they're playing. Yeah, I, a few things there. I, I think that this film and Manchester by the Sea specifically are not films that would benefit from more um, like o- overemphasized cinematography. I, I think that getting really good cinematographers that are passively able to improve any direction that he recommends is really what seals him as a director for me. It's not that any of his films um, aren't formally dazzling, but they also just never look bad. Like I can't think of a shot here that I thought looked bad, was poorly composed, had bad lighting, uh, bad reflection work like he manages to make the police off or, or the police precinct not feel um you know ugly but it doesn't really feel fancy either like we get from the offices in the film dark waters with also starring mark ruffalo um here we're just getting kind of a passive narrative where the, the purpose of the, the plot itself is that no one's more important than anyone else at some level. And I think that his direction feeds into that with uh, Richard's, you know, cinematography, just making everything really beautiful to look at. If you pause the film and just look at the way that he shot stuff and how shadows are falling, that type of thing. Um, Referencing the accident that you mentioned, I do think that one of the greatest choices that he made was the basic use of the play prop, essentially, where he has a cart she's pushing that is now flattened, spaghetti that is dried, strewn over the street, eggs cracked open. Um, It's a really plain way of showing an accident that is incredibly effective. I think it's one of the most memorable props that I can think of in, in the last 10 years. And I you know, I'm only sitting on a couple days with this film, but I just, I really can't think of another prop that has as much crux to a story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would agree. It, it, I've seen the film, I've seen the theatrical, theatrical cut once, the extended cut twice now. And every time I kind of think having seen it once before that I'll be a little number to that scene every time it just shakes me. And there are other scenes in the movie that I just cannot help but get emotional about, even though some of them are really simple. Like I keep waiting for myself to like desensitize to it a little bit and it's just not happening. It just, it gets me every time. Um, and this, the, the accident is definitely one of the, one of the most powerful ones. Um, 
yeah, um, I'm curious if we would maybe characterize what actually kind of happens to her emotionally in the same way or not. Um, you know, I guess I view her in the aftermath of this accident as deeply shaken by it and, and guilty. We get the guilt. Um, and, you know, it's, it's something that rocks her worldview. It's something that allows her to realize just how arbitrarily cruel and unfair the world can be. And she's desperately wanting accountability. Um, and um, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, the, 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 the nihilism that the accident kind of plants in her seems to, you know, fuel some of the reckless behavior that we see her start to engage in. But I sort of like the ambiguity in how much of it is the accident? How much of it is just teenage behavior? Um, I think there's complexity in how Lonergan never really um, makes that too clear. There's there's some blurriness in how much of her behavior is driven by the fallout of this accident versus just the intensity of teenage emotions and um, a little bit of recklessness. I don't know. Um, just just curious about your thoughts on what you see her going through. Yeah. Well, there's a a lot there. I'll try to remember as much as I can here. Um, So number one, I would characterize her as pained. First and foremost, she is experiencing pain and she is looking for not quite retribution, but something close to that because she's not looking for justice. She's looking for justice as she defines it. And that is illustrated throughout different conversations in the film. Um, you, you know, there's a really passionate conversation she has with the best friend of the victim in which she calls her strident, as I made an allusion to earlier. And she kind of explains what you're saying, where you're a teenager and you think that everything revolves around you and you're the center of the world. There's conversations in the classroom where they're talking about the Israeli-Palestinian warfare. And they're also talking about um, life in Syria as pertaining to one of her classmates' life and how her relatives view uh, the war going on in the Middle East. And her, the way that she's voicing herself there kind of is, is showing this light that we're not getting directly from how she feels about what occurred that she shares partial responsibility for. And then the crucial moment in the film that I think I didn't pick up on the first time is when she actually declares that it's her fault and that Mark Mm. Ruffalo doesn't know that it's his fault. He's still driving around on the street. He doesn't know. And that moment occurs when they're settling for $350,000, a lawsuit with the bus company. Um, and it is incredibly brutal. Um, it, it's more brutal than when her mom calls her a cunt and she calls her a cunt right back. Like there, there is some absolutely brutal scenes here. And I think that on reflection that hits way harder than even the bus death does. Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the, the emotion that just she unleashes in that monologue where she finally confesses her guilt is, you know, just one of several examples of 
how precise and how great the dialogue is because like there's so much meaningful information but there are these little like humorous nuggets in the middle of these monologues too like in that particular monologue i think that's where halfway through it she she apologizes for the way that she is and says something like it's not my fault that my mom's an actress and this idea that she she thinks she's theatrical and emotional because that's how she's always watched her mom behave. I love that little nugget that she has that self-awareness. She She's almost blaming her mom for her behavior. Again, a little bit about her self-absorption. Um, and it's right in between all of this um, information we're getting about how she feels about the accident. Um, that stuff's great. Like you're, 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 you're so gripped by this dialogue because every line seems to matter so much and reveal something. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that she, she makes that reference to being sorry for being theatrical because of her mother, um, earlier in the conversation or or earlier in the film, rather, she is having a conversation with her father, the playwright, Kenneth Lonergan, and he mentions that math or perhaps it was algebra or geometry was never his forte either. And she says, I guess I got that from you. Um, and, and that's Mm. not just something here. I, I, for this, I read some plays from Kenneth Lonergan, but specifically um, the film or the the play "This Is Our Youth" um, makes constant reference to blaming parents for the world that you now inhabit, and I think that's something that he's very interested in because it is such a human behavior that is so um, repetitive uh, amongst every generation that we now have stories from. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's kind of fun to think about how we know that, you know, he was pressured to try to cut this movie down, but he really adamantly wanted this long ass movie, a full three hours long, which just makes you think that much more about why he wanted every particular scene because he, it's, we know this is exactly what he wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, and you can kind of imagine getting less of getting less story about the parents, her relationship with her father and especially the mom. We get a lot about the mom's dating life mm-hmm. um, that you can imagine on the cutting room floor. If you just wanted to dial in on Lisa's experience, but yeah, that um, I- idea about how she relates to her parents and what she thinks she's inheriting from her parents or blaming her parents for um, I think I'll, I think it adds a lot. Um, and it only kind of reinforces that idea that, that the world is not all about her. And it, again, shows us her self-absorption when she's not really doing a great job of thinking about what her mom is going through um, and how brutal she can be with her mom when she says something like, I want to go live with dad. She's just totally oblivious to her mom's anxiety and insecurity. Like, I, I wouldn't. I can't imagine not having that stuff in the movie, um, even though this is um, so centered on what she goes through. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, a couple things there. I don't know that he wanted a three hour cut. I, I, as far as I understand it, this is not a director's cut that we're talking about the extended cut. He never actually had the cut come out that he wanted. So I believe that it's supposed to be much, if not significantly longer. Um, 
And in the theatrical cut, I, I do think that we still got the interaction of I'm going to I'm thinking about going to live with dad for a year. I think that that did stay. But like a, a really interesting cut that was maybe two seconds on the cutting room floor was that conversation where she has called Karen Culkin to come take her virginity and she's getting ready for him to come over. And John Gallagher Jr. calls her and she says that she doesn't want to talk and hangs up. I think that we just show him hanging up in the theatrical, whereas in the extended cut, they hang up and he has, you know, uh, a little bit of a breakdown and begins crying. And that small detail for that character, it makes such a difference. And that good, that echoes in the future when in the extended cut, we have that um, scene with them as they're getting ready for their play and they're all taking turns sharing their emotions and Kieran Culkin mm. has that great line about him just wanting to show up to play music and then go smoke pot on the roof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I do. I really like the Kieran Culkin character as just kind of a counterpoint to Lisa, Lisa's personality. You know, I think after the accident, you know, her, her worldview is kind of falling apart. She's maybe starting to think that, you know, shit happens and she's kind of questioning what, what consequences even mean. And we see her, you know, do some some questionable questionable things maybe that she wouldn't other do like kind of um take john gallagher jr's character for a ride telling him that she loves him out of nowhere mm-hmm. um and kieran culkin's character also maybe doesn't think that he has a uh, maybe too chill of a worldview about things um you know, just his his utter relaxation, his over relaxation about things versus her anxiety is a nice contrast. And I think is two very real teenage personality types. Yeah, I, I think that the, the best scene that they share together is that Third Reich scene where he picks up the mm. book and says, this is a great book. You got to read it. She says, I think it's a little bit too heavy for me right now. He's, it's a real page turner once you get started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and he's that, just sitting there trying to read it. Those are the kinds of details that I think, you know, have some interesting resonance, whether it's referencing the Third Reich, we're hearing about 9-11, the Arab-Israeli conflict, these ideas that, you know, these are all huge world events that involve the suffering of so many people. um, And yet, you know, the death of one person and its effect on one person can seem just as monumental. Mm -hmm. Um, Seems just seems like one of the kind of ideas this is getting at. I, I completely agree. Um, I, I've had a very brief amount of experience with Lonergan, unfortunately, but the plays that, that I've now read from him and the, the films that we've seen and talked about on the show, I think we've gone, gotten to Manchester by the sea. I might be wrong there, but when he touches on teenagers, he really, knows how to write their dialogue in a way that I don't know that any other contemporary playwright I've ever seen can write dialogue for a teenager. I'm obviously not too familiar with the co-qualities of like the 1910s for teenagers and some of those older playwrights. But what I've seen, you know, this side of the 1980s, like I, I think that Lonergan's teenager characters and like young 20s characters are just, you know, written at a level that's kind of incomparable. I, I love Sam Shepard and, and all those other guys, but I I really think that as a writer, Lonergan's kind of in his own tier as far as um, 
developing characters that are real humans at that age go. Yeah. I think it's just kind of a blast to listen to Anna Paquin talk because Lisa's such an incredibly articulate teenager. So this combination of the just outpouring of emotion at times, while she has this incredible kind of vocabulary and she's very well-spoken, that combination of the emotional intensity with this articulate way of speaking is just, just kind of just so fun to hear. Um, yeah, I would agree about the writing. Um, I thought a lot about Manchester by the Sea in general as just kind of the next best point of comparison um, because of how kind of uh, similar the experiences are between Lisa and Casey Affleck's Lee. I like to even think that there's something to the similar names between those two characters, but that's probably a stretch. Um, but how Casey Affleck's Lee in that movie it's also struggling with guilt, but he internalizes it so deeply and is just punishing himself for him. And Lisa is desperately looking to express this guilt and relieve herself of it. Um, I think they're, they're two um, characters that are kind of interesting to compare to each other. I, yeah, I, I found myself doing the same thing. Um, it, it's hard to really put that tragedy together with it. Um, I, I found myself thinking um, as well about the film with Laura Linney and Mark Ruffalo that I'm now blanking on the name of. What was that called? You Can Count on Me? Yeah. Um, and the the parents had died in a car crash. And the sister, Laura Linney, um, was kind of responsible. And, and Mark Ruffalo was running away from things. Um and once again, there, there's a child character that kind of becomes the centerpiece. Um, so, you, you know, that's kind of how he tells stories is through the generations, like many great playwrights have, where he has these differing generations. And it's always the youngest generation that kind of in the, the piece itself that ends up kind of bringing the um, thematic resolution, if you could say that Margaret even has one. Um Although that that is a pretty great um, ending point in the extended cut after crying and hugging her mother. Um, I, I do have one thing that I, I don't quite know what to do with, and that's the younger brother. Um, mm. I, I didn't get the sense that he was developed as much as he should have been, um, especially the first hour of the theatrical cut. He seems like a much more important character. And by the end of the extended or theatrical, you're kind of like, what's going on? I would completely agree. I don't know that I would, I absolutely love this movie. I would consider it a favorite movie. It still feels imperfect to me. And I'm just kind of okay with that. And that character is totally one of the imperfections, I guess, where sometimes it feels like he's just not even part of the family in a way. I don't know why he's just odd. He seems a little out of place. I'm totally with you on that. Maybe I didn't, maybe I overstated that. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's how I feel. No, I, I completely, there's weird moments in the film where Kenneth Lonergan is talking to his daughter and he says, say goodbye to someone's name for me. And I go, who the hell are you talking about? And then I remember that there's a little brother. And I'm like, is that his name? Have I heard his name? And then I forget his name. And I, I, I agree that this is a film that feels like a favorite um, and is imperfect. This is one of those few projects that feels like a living um, project where I, 
I'm not convinced that as long as Kenneth Lonergan's alive, that we haven't seen the final cut of it. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. there might be one more cut that he's working on. Um, because I think that even if you take the extended cut and do some improvements to the sound design on the back half, it, it could even make it closer to perfect. Yeah. 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 Sometimes there's something about an imperfection that just makes it feel even more like the product of human hands that I kind of like versus something that just feels like it was the output of a machine or something like that. Yes. Sometimes something too well oiled can actually turn me off a little bit. Um, like one of the things that was struck that that struck me was when Lisa goes to Matt Damon to talk about the accident to get his thoughts. There's a continuity error there where we get a couple of shots back and forth between Matt Damon and a student he's talking to at the door. And mm-hmm. in one of the shots, they're holding hands and then the next shot they're not. Um, but it's a great like kind of error because of where this relationship between them ultimately goes. And I love that dynamic between them, but it, but it, it, the continuity does not make sense that they're holding hands one second and, and not the next. So it, it does not seem intentional by any means. Um, but yeah, th- that stuff weirdly is kind of, uh, nice in a way yeah it has a charm to it um i i think that while we're talking about kind of that schoolroom scene we we do have to bring up the the title of the film is called margaret but we haven't brought up why and that's Mm -hmm. because um in a different classroom matthew broderick reads the class the poem spring and fall by gerard manley hopkins which is um kind of a a you know it's a bit of a unnecessary for teaching kids at that age. Maybe uh, I, it's one of the few poems that I, I remember learning in college and just imagining what was she in like 10th grade or something. Um, imagining mm-hmm. teaching kids um, Hopkins poems at that age, just it, you know, it's, it's a very, odd thing to do but it does introduce us to a a poem that kind of timing wise correlates with when uh, Lisa begins to exhibit some of those behavior patterns where we can tell that she's in pain and starting to question giving a falsified police report directly after the accident and that I, I think even though I don't really buy teaching this poem in high school it it works. I do think it works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. Um, I guess I like the sentiment well enough that even if it maybe is hard to buy or something like that, I, I yeah. go with it. You know, the the poem is about... It's better this, than, uh, right? Better than what? Than having a Walt Whitman poem lead to the title of the film or something <laughs> yeah exactly um yeah the sentiment of the poem is this girl is crying because she sees that the, the leaves in this beautiful area have died and the guy is saying the the speaker of the poem the writer i guess is saying you know one day you won't cry over this but you'll you'll cry but for a different reason because you know that the leaves will come back and one day you won't um mm-hmm. and uh you know that is yeah, that's just part of coming of age. Um, and that's not something um, that we explicitly see her realizing, but I like the implication that this is all part of a broader kind of part of growing up that she is uh, kind of about to go through. Um, yeah, I like the idea. 
yes, it, it, it delivers on its premise pretty dang well. Um, a couple other things that are, are artistic and referenced here. Um, we obviously have Shakespeare in, in the classroom and a debate over whether uh, consciousness of God was uh, meant a certain way. Um, in which Broderick gets quite irate with um, what can only be described as a, a stoner philosopher. <laughs> Absolutely one of the funniest scenes in the movie. Broderick is so funny, like just not having the student's opinion. <laughs> He's like, you're wrong. Shut up. We're moving on. <laughs> I love that scene. I don't want to talk about this anymore. We're moving on. Um, and then we have two operas. And I'm going to attempt to recount for you these operas and the um, people that are credited with writing them, but I'm going to butcher it. So just know that uh, at the end, we have um, Jacques Offenbach's Le Comte de Hoffman. Um, and the specific song that they're playing is O Nuit de Moore. And that's the, the kind of the ending crescendo where um they're moved by the beauty of it and by the context of what's occurred in the opera. Jay Smith Cameron and Anna Pack and hug and and cry. Um, it, it's a really, really sentimental moment. I, I attempted to get through some of the opera. I, I didn't make it very far this morning, but it I think it is a beautiful piece that I probably need to reflect on before I rewatch Margaret here in the next six years or so. Yeah, yeah. Again, just a nice bit of ambiguity. No words exchanged between them she gets upset first then her mom sees her and she gets upset and they they hug um just lots you know you can read into what they're each feeling at that moment which is a lot which is probably a lot of different things at once yeah because i mean as you pointed out earlier what cameron's going through is totally different than what packin's going through and and she has not been witnessing the emotion that her mother is experiencing in any way she's been really rude um in multiple scenes so i i i think that there's more buried in the context of understanding that opera particularly that scene and song than um you know i was able to interpret this viewing yeah yeah the you know the optimist in me always kind of looks for the hopefulness in in ambiguity and i guess i like the possible suggestion that when even though we eventually realize how cruel and unfair the world can be in such an arbitrary and random way one of the ways of dealing with it is through art um and opera is one of the art forms whose emotional intensity seems to understand how deeply we feel things um but yeah, I, I mean, there's there, there's a lot you could extract from that, those couple shots. Yeah, and then just to finish that off, um, there was one other opera in the film um, where Jean Renault took out J. Smith Cameron on their first date, and that was from a incredibly long name, Vincenzo Salvatore Carmelo Francesco Bellini, and that was I believe called Norma. And the song that they particularly showed was Costa Diva um, from Norma. So that's the breakdown on the specific pieces. If you've seen the film and want to know what the heck those were called, now you know. Um, 
I, that's one thing we haven't talked about was Jean Renault. Um, what did you think of our, our friend showing up here? I don't know that I love the performance, but I do like that storyline uh, about her mom probably being pretty lonely and she's, she's insecure about her profession and she's anxious about what her daughter is going through. And she clearly knows that this isn't necessarily a good match, but she's not really willing to put the brakes on it because she just likes his company. I think Um, he's kind of pretentious. I don't know that I just really respond to the performance that he gives, but um, I do like that thread. What about you? Yeah, I, I would only disagree in saying that I like the performance. I, I like oh, okay. his um, offhandedness and, I mean, particularly the scene in the extended cut where he says, let's not talk about who we are with each other. If you want to talk about me, talk about it with your friends. I, that is such a distinctive line that I, I was kind of just reeled back in my seat like, what are you saying there, Ken? Uh, right yeah. because i i mean he's written a lot of lines um about relationships and i i do think that there's some insight into not discussing the fundamental natures of people with people that you're in relationships with because then you start critiquing each other and that ends up being a subtext to all future conversations that you end up having in that relationship. Mm. And I, I do think that there was a great depth of insight to many things that, that Jean Renault said. And there's also some quite funny deliverance lines where he says, what if I would have said uh, the word Israeli instead of Jewish, for instance, mm. um, at a, at a certain table um, dinner that they had. Um, so I, I really, really did respond well to him. Cool. Cool. Yeah. And as we go through some of these other characters, Matt Damon plays her teacher, who she is very, very flirtatious with. Um, what do you think of that? She dice? is flirtatious with, rather, and Matthew Broderick's the one she's not. Um, yes, yes. I I think that Matt Damon was good, not great. He was very convincing, but I I do feel like there's something to his arc that is sitting on the cutting room floor, um, and I, I mean like everyone else i'm sure i want to know what to what extent their physical relationship was in that scene where it kind of cuts out before you get to know before she goes and has an abortion um because you you don't know what the time delay is um as far as i'm aware i was unable to track what the the timing was for that um engagement that they had whatever its nature it was physical um so far as we saw to when she had the abortion. So we end up not knowing if it's Karen Culkin or if it was Matt Damon. Say that one more time. I'm confused when you're talking about Matt Damon and Karen Culkin. Uh, the, the abortion. We don't know if, if the baby was oh, 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 got it. Or, or Karen Culkin's got uh, it, got out it. of the two men that were introduced to having physical relationships with uh, Anna Packins, Lisa. Got it. Right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I did like Matt Damon pretty well myself. Um, and one thing I like about that thread is that, well, I feel like Lonergan is very sympathetic to everything Lisa is going through. He is not ignorant of her flaws. Her self-absorption is one of them. But also just how kind of manipulative she is in this relationship. And I think that's 
you know, best exemplified maybe when she runs into him on his bike and she asks to ride around his bike for a minute mm-hmm. and she's so flirtatious. She says she, she reveres him like a god. Um, he clearly is attracted. He doesn't really have the strength to shut this down before it gets too far. I kind of like the the weakness Damon is carrying as he's interacting with her. But then the second he leaves, all this flirtation just, just drops off her face and the, the, the kind of seductive smile just falls off. And this idea that she's totally just toying with him, um, I think is nicely played. Um, and I think that leads to one of the more devastating developments in the movie, which is that after she realizes that this case is just going to result in um, the cousin of the woman who died getting a bunch of money. You know, I I could see her saying, well, you know, I got an abortion. Screw it. Maybe I'll try to get some money out of this. You know, just the kind of disillusionment from how all this is played out and how this um, affects her decision making, I think is really interesting. That is that. That's a note in the screenplay that I I didn't particularly take that read on. That that is certainly something that she could have done. Um, I I didn't at all think about that. I I yeah. That that's a great point. Um, I guess moving on to additional characters, we've danced around her quite a bit. She's in a lot of main scenes. But what do you think of J. Smith Cameron? Oh, I think she's really good. And one of my favorites is a scene that doesn't even matter much. How about, how about the impressions she does? The lolly. The baby. Oh, and like, yeah, it's uh, Shirley Temple, I think, yep. right? So good. Those are incredible impressions. Like, I like the idea of Lonergan saying, these are just too good. These are going in. Uh, <laughs> I think she's great. What about you? Yeah, um, I, I've been a fan of hers for a long time. She hasn't had quite the body of work that you want from an actress that you love, but recently she's become kind of a main player um, in the HBO series succession. And the work that that she does there is, is just as good. I, this film in particular, I, I find so um, remarkable that it did not release when it should have. I I have a lot of questions about if it did end up releasing in 2005 or 2006 when it should have, if J. Smith Cameron and Anna Packin's careers would have looked remarkably different, if they would have been Mm -hmm. offered a lot more projects. Because the critical acclaim that this film ended up getting in 2011, I can't imagine not being there when all these topics were a lot more um, fraught and, and at the the heart and at the head of the heart and the mind of, of many people in this country. I, I just feel like it would have been this thing that people were talking about in a cultural moment where everyone else would have wanted to go to the theater to see it so they could talk about their experience with it too. And not knowing what their careers would have been if they were Oscar nominated actress, J. Smith Cameron and, you know, Oscar nominated actress Anna Packen is really weird to just think about for me. Yeah. You think about, you know, how large of an audience Manchester by the sea ultimately found and how that kind of launched Lucas Hedges in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember seeing him in anything before that. Um, yeah. It's, it's really unfortunate that this was um, 
so troubled in its release and what yeah what this could have meant for a lot of the people involved yeah i, I mean if i would have seen this at that time i might not think of anna packen as the girl that played rogue from x-men you know i oh, mean yeah. now she's she's the the um star of true blood as well in in my collective memories of of her appearances but th- this is just such a remarkable role and j smith cameron is so good here that it, it's just kind of infuriating but uh, mm-hmm. we, we have the early Olivia Thurlby, early John Gallagher Jr. Both of them are kind of indie film stars that, you know, anybody that likes a good A24 movie probably knows both their names. Um, mm-hmm. And then Kieran Culkin. This is, I think, one of the earliest juicy roles for Kieran Culkin also in Succession um, that I've seen. What would you think of Kieran? I think he's pretty good as the uh, utterly chill... I don't know if we ever see him smoking pot. Why does he just seem like a pothead to me? I don't know if we actually see him. He talks lighting about up pot or not. a lot. He we see him lighting up a cigarette, and when yeah, he walks yeah. in, he he says that he totally. Um, God, I forget what the word is, but he he used just a pretentious as heck word to uh, say that he like estranged a neighbor while he was in the elevator mm. because he was smoking, and she's like, well, "What did they tell you?" No smoking. How original. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, there's definitely some arrogance to that. And, you know, you know, I think people always talk about how male directors depict uh, uh, female sexuality on screen, especially, um, you know, young women. And I, I, I really think that that scene where he comes over because she's asked him to take his virginity has played out very sensitively and and totally appropriate and i think it uh is it, it just totally works he's he's talked himself up he's been so chill and uh confident about himself and then he basically fails and kind of uh uh delivers an abbreviated performance i guess i could say um yeah um once again the, this reminds me of the the previous film and somehow i'm forgetting it again come on michael laura lenny oh you can count on me yeah um there is some sexual moments in that film once again matthew broderick's there um but i i think that all the films that i've seen him direct are really not over sexualizing the the sex Mm -hmm. that is being had by any character on screen um so i I would totally agree with that but i I will say that i think that the use uh, of you know light from outside the scene coming through the windows to light the scene so that it was dark um Mm. added a level of sensuality to it that i I think was was really expert um i i guess the main villain here mark ruffalo what what Mm -hmm. do you think of the mark I like what he's doing here. Um, you know, I think his big moment is when Lisa comes over to his house just to talk about the accident. Um, you know, just how clearly terrified he is of what exactly it is she wants, I think is really well played and how natural the emotions that follow are, the anger and the um kind of confusion about what she wants. I think that's a really well-played scene. Did, did you like what he was doing? Yeah. Yeah. That particular scene I, I thought was really good. The um, having the ability to 
kind of take his fury out on his wife played by Rosemary DeWitt was also just a great way of um, setting that scene up so that he has someone to yell at besides her. Um, So he seems a little bit demonstrative. So it's not too hard to believe that he's a bad guy. Um, But you still wonder, you know, how bad of a guy is he Um, in the end? You you never, I think really define him as a true villain, but um, rather just a human that, you know, made a mistake and doesn't want to get caught more than anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And that he has a pattern of that. I, I think that, the silent acting he's doing earlier during the um, the bus scene while she's chasing him and nothing sad mm. has happened yet. And then during the investigation as well w- was really, really well played um, because he conveys a lot with just how his body and his eyes are contorted um, that ends up setting up essentially the whole film off of his performance there. Um, one small thing that I, I, don't know what to do with is he asks for her phone number during the scene that you brought up. And Mm. I do not recall any conversation subsequent to that. Uh, Yeah. I think that like, that's where the conversation ends. Do you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like I, cause he asks for the phone number cause he's, he's going to sue her. Um, right. And there's just nothing ever develops out of that plot line. So Mm. I, I do wonder if there's something there in in the cutting room floor that maybe mm. adds another 45 minutes of her getting sued herself. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Maybe, yeah, there maybe that thread had more to it. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I guess I read it as he was he was feeling so on the defense that he yeah. was trying to like take control of the situation again, go on the offensive, even though he maybe didn't know what he was going to do with it. But uh yeah, yeah. Fair question about what he had in mind exactly. Yeah, that. I mean, that was my takeaway as well. But on reflection, I was like, well, it doesn't make sense that he just kind of drops out after that and that we never mm-hmm. see him again other than when um, she points him out. Um, mm-hmm. it, it Something just doesn't seem totally finalized with that thread line for me. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I do really like him. Um yeah, is, is there any uh, other portion of the film you want to go over? Well, it's been so long since I saw the theatrical cut, but what I don't remember is there being nearly as much in the second half of the shots of the city itself. Um, Correct. Is that right? Those were all yes. added Those to were, the extended cut. I, I mean, there were some, I think, during the Central Park Smoke a J scene. In the theatrical cut, I think there was maybe a smidge uh, of some of that passive landscape. Um, maybe when Broderick walks away, you get the sound of the city talking while they say, smoke a jay, smoke a jay. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. but, but really, most of it, I, I don't remember being in the theatrical cut. And that's that's the type of stuff that I, I think really makes the extended cut different in, in a great way. Yeah, yeah, I guess I was kind of struck by how kind of backloaded some of that content is like there's that one like 360 degree shot in a park where the camera is just panning all the way around looking at buildings and trees and that kind of thing. It just feels like there's a lot more of that in the back half. Um, So I don't know. It's 
I mean, I, I just find them unbearably moving, even though it's hard to say exactly why. It's just about how the film feels like it's kind of opening up in this in this back half um, and really looking at the outside world. Um, you know, there's that shot where the camera keeps tilting back, back, back as it follows a plane that's flying overhead mm-hmm. um, while she's on the phone. She's totally in her own world. And yet we're, we're seeing, you know, the rest Every, of the everything world. Everything else is going on around her. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I love those scenes so much. I yeah, I that's one of those is going to be my favorite scene. I'll say that. Oh, I like it. <laughs> I like it. Um, yeah, I I mean, once again, writer, director, actor. I I think Lonergan is probably one of my my mainstays. You know, he he'd be on my um, current playwright. You know, Mount Rushmore, a, a face that I could absolutely put up there um anything else you want to go over i don't think so do we do favorite scenes yeah let's do favorite scenes you go first no you go first you were already almost there oh you just buying some time um so always in the extended cut there is a scene where i still don't know who it was or if i should um near the end of the film we end up on a sidewalk and you're kind of like, what's going on here? And the camera is facing uh, dark hair and a woman who's walking and she's waiting for the crosswalk to go green. She begins walking and she continues walking and you're going, is this Anna Paquin? We know that this isn't J Smith Cameron because she doesn't have the right hair for that. But then this person's hair seems too long for that. And you're one who is this? And you're constantly wondering who is this as she walks further and further away and becomes engulfed in more and more and more people. And the camera slowly pans up and it is just such a great passive use of the lens to show you that there's other people in the sea of New York that are just a couple deviations away from your main character to have their own story and ju- to, to show it so passively with the camera. I, it's just a beautiful striking image that I'm not going to forget. Great pick. I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, that's an awesome shot. Um, very hard to pick, but the one that was coming to mind is the fight between Anna Paquin's Lisa and her mom, when her mom's getting ready to go out with Ramon and the fight just escalates over the course of a couple minutes until they're eventually calling each other cunts Mm -hmm. um and they're both just going through two completely different things and they're both not understanding what each other what each of them are are going through and they're just missing each other's anxieties and worries and it's also one of the more some of the more devastating lines from lisa where she's talking about you know, mom, it doesn't matter. None of it matters. And right in the middle of her monologue, she says, people are dying out there. And how just sort of not anchored that line is and how confused her mom is when she says that um, just seems to kind of encapsulate this, um, what's driving this spiral that she then, you know, falls into. Um, I don't know, just some some of the more um, kind of, textured dialogue as they battle each other there and they're both feeling so much and not quite understanding each other um it's a good scene 
I absolutely love that scene. I believe that J. Smith Cameron says before the scene ends something like, well, should I go? I don't even, or should I invite him up? I don't even know what we're arguing about anymore. Um, right, right. And then she says some retort and it cuts to her walking with Jean Renault on the city street. Um, yeah, great scene. Um, all right. Well, that's it for this week or rather this month, since this is rescreening, we'll be back next month with Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. And that is another one in the can. Now you don't.